one of the key stereotypes that I want to break out today for development side of things, where a lot of people naturally think that a higher density on a development side means more profit. And uh, I sort of disagree that higher density does not always mean more profit. Hello and welcome to another episode of Help Me Buy Property Podcast. Today we are talking about the continuing topic of six strategies to make six figures. And drum roll, let me introduce my co-host, Miss Cheryl. Cheryl, how are you today? Hello, Moss. I'm fantastic. How are you? That's so exciting. More strategies to make more six figures. How cool is that? That's awesome. That's that's amazing. Look, I mean, I think today we are talking about a topic that is close to both of our hearts. And this is all about developments and how to make six figures Yay! in developments. Awesome. It, I think there is so many different ways that you can cut this development cake, right? You can talk about land subdivisions. We can talk about small-scale developments. We can talk about you know, full-scale developments. But let's start simple. Let's start slow. So the easiest development strategy that you would say how would you code in relation to six figures through development? How easy it is? You know, give me a, like a two-minute spill. What does that look like? Well, I'd say development. I mean, when people think of development, where they're thinking they need to always be knocking down and rebuilding things when really, you know, development is as in its simplest form, even a renovation. Like a renovation, you're improving. You're improving a property and you're, you're manufacturing the capital growth in a property and I think that's that's the point of development is that you're not you know we've previously talked about sort of more a more passive investment where it's your you buy something it sits there and, and you wait sort of the, for the capital growth whereas with development it's it's anything that you're adding value to create some level of uplift I mean whether you Definitely. hold that hold that or you sell that you know that's just all, all part of what exit strategy and we've spoken a lot about you know, built to rents previously, I think what we're going to be focusing on is is more of that build or renovate and then depending on the development. Yeah. Yeah. No, 100%. Look, I mean, if you think from a development perspective, naturally, um, it's a transition from a passive investment strategy to a much more active investment strategy. Um, one key thing to note about development is that just because a property is developable doesn't doesn't mean that you need to develop it, right? Doesn't mean that it's profitable to do that development. It's quite the key. It's quite important. Um, in the basic terms, it's all about making the money today when you're thinking about development, right? It's about, you know, if I, you know, buy this land today or if I buy this property today, the council allows me to develop this today. The architect does the plans for this today. The builder builds it today and the real estate agent sells it today. Do I make a profit today? I think that's the easiest definition of what you can see development through, right? You know, no yeah. BS around uh, future growth, X, Y, and Z, what is going to be, you know, six months, one year, two years down the track. You know, you're not taking into account any of the capital growth when it comes to development. And so you, what you're ultimately doing is you're taking that gamble out of the property market and doing it at your own free will, at your own free pace, right? So yeah yeah absolutely and the thing i mean something that you 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 brought up is that we're not necessarily forecasting that growth during the development phase and although i do recall when i first started to learn about how to 
how to do feasibilities and and in in certain feasibility software, you do account for potentially, you know, a few percentage of growth during the time of development. However, the way that I I look at it, and we're, when we're doing developments, I'm like, this is what we're going to be selling for it now. Like, even though it sure. might take two years, this is the value that we we're accounting for in our feasibility now. Yes. And any yes. update is going to be sort of a bonus from there. Definitely, 100%. And if you think about developments in the truest form, again, you know, taking it further out, uh, development is all about papers. It's all about doing it on paper first, right? If it works on paper, then only it would do it in real life. You know, I've seen this numerous number of times. You talk to a, a person uh, who is a mom and dad developer, you know, I call them mom and dad developer or, or a newbie developer or a knob developer. And, uh, and, you know, they are crunching their numbers on the fingers, right? They'd be like, oh, I've bought the site at 1.6, you know, I'll add an extra 200, blah, I'll sell it at this, you know, there is 300,000, $400,000 margin. And I say to people, you know, put it in a, in a feasibility and you would see how dramatically the numbers look different, right? Yeah. Add yeah. a bit of, add a bit of uh, meat to the bones, understand what development really means. You know, you take up the finance cost, you add a bit of conservatism, you add contingencies, you put in, you know, development contributions or, you know, infrastructure overheads that the council needs. And all of a sudden, the, the picture does not look that green anymore, right? Good. Yes. Yeah, yeah. Because we don't take into account things like the GST, and the holding costs it's you know when you start off you sort of you know as often because when you're when you're starting off in development you might drive past a development site and say you know it's, it's a duplex and you're like oh this duplex is selling for two million dollars each the developers bought it for a million dollars it only cost 500 you know five hundred thousand dollars to build there's still money in there and it's like no that's actually a <laughs> there's, there's no money in there yes but to an out, or I guess an outsider or someone who doesn't like, uh, doesn't really understand the numbers, and that's I guess the the risk is if if you don't understand the numbers behind it, like that there's not going to be a whole lot of profit in that project. Definitely, anything definitely. that's a bit of a loss. And ultimately, when you are you know planning to do a development, you know you need to scale it up. You need to think this through as to what strategy that you are going to go with and how many multiple exists that you are thinking about in relation to developments, right? So if you think from the most common ones that people, you know, tend to see or look um, are things like hammerheads, multi-units and land subdivisions. We'll, and we'll go down that level of detail and talk a bit about each one of those strategies, you know, be splitters or, you know, hammerheads. But one key thing that I always look at from a development perspective as a rule of thumb is, and this rule, look, I mean, any developers who are listening to this podcast, any viewers that are listening to this podcast, this is my rule of thumb. Everyone would have a rule of thumb, you know, when they are looking at developments. And so my rule of thumb potentially is that when I'm looking at um, a GRV to an acquisition price ratio, your GRV needs to be at least three and a half times of the acquisition price for the numbers to work, whether it's a three unit side or a four unit side. These do, this ratio usually typically does not work on duplexes i think duplexes may work at two and a half to three as well but it definitely works on three or more unit sites and so you know if you're buying a site for one million your grv should be more than three and a half million for the numbers to work this used to work at 2.7 to 3 before but now with the build prices rising and the grv not rising as much as possible 
basically, you know, that integer or this number has basically gone up slightly. So do you have any yeah. rule of thumbs, anything that, you know, you keep a close eye on, Cheryl? I know you've talked about GST side of things. Is there any nifty trick before we go into a bit more detail? It's not really a trick, but the 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 thirds is is one that I agree. Even when you know, like I said, it doesn't really work so much on duplexes, but but multiple lot ones they they do. So when you're doing your fee, you know, anyone that's doing their feasibility, and even, it's more sort of a rough guide so that you can sort of go, oh, I, I'm gonna. Is this around three? You know, is the GRV going to be about three times what 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 I'm buying it for? And if it's sort of close, not that it's it, it's an exact size, then it, you're going to want to work, spend a little bit more time on on doing a quick fizo. I guess the rule of thumb often that I will have is doing a real quick fizo in my head, where I take a G, GRV, I do ninety, you know, ninety percent of that give or take type thing, and and then also work out all right. Well, I want twenty percent of my my total cost. So I'll do a really rough, all right, well, I'm purchasing it for this much. I might have 20% for DA costs and, and holding and so on. And then I sort of pop that on top and then I go, okay, is there still enough there for at least 25%, for example, 25%, because yeah. I know there's going to be some, some level of contingency and all that. And if it comes in fairly close, then I know, okay, I'm going to spend a bit more time in doing a proper feasibility but it's really more so that you can filter through the many, many sites that you tend to go through because yes, 90, yes. 95% of, of the sites out there don't stack up. Don't work. Yes, 100%. 100%. And I, I think that that's what it comes down to. I think a lot of people, you know, when I tell them that, you know, we assess uh, at least 50 to 100 sites a week, they are a bit surprised. But like, how can you assess so many sites a week? Like, it takes me literally five minutes to assess a site, right? I would, you know, cross out areas, cross out sites quite quickly, go through the suburbs and see where these numbers are working. Understand that this mindset of, oh, this suburb is always going to work is definitely wrong because I have found that suburbs work and then they don't work and then they work again and then they don't work. So there is always these, what I call these price disconnects between GRV and the land price. And sometimes they are there for six months to eight months to a year and then they disappear and then they come back again. Also, the key thing in relation to developments is the bigger the site becomes, the better the margins are. One of the key stereotypes that I want to break out today for developments out of things where a lot of people naturally think that a higher density on a development site means more profit. And uh, I sort of disagree that higher density does not always mean more profit. And I was talking to a client today where I was giving him an example that this particular site that we were looking at together, I said to him, you can build two bedroom townhouses here, but the cost goes up. But ultimately, the GRV doesn't go up relatively much more. And so it, it just doesn't make sense to you know increase the, the density here when the profits is actually going down, it's not going up. And so you see a lot of plans, you see a lot of sites where people are fl flicking these sites with plans. And you look at the plans, you'd be like, oh, these are terrible plans. I wouldn't do it this way. Or, oh my God, such a bad product market fit that these people have picked for this particular suburb. And yeah. so you see these mistakes typically happening, you know, when, we are, when people are picking development sites. Yeah. And one of the things to note is in terms of Adding more, particularly if you're in a fairly, you know, if you're you're talking about a greenfield area, they, you're having to pay more contributions as well. 
Yes, so correct. you're going to do those numbers to sort of weigh up. Is it worth paying more contributions? Am I still going to get as a relative the number of income because your cost increases as well? And so sometimes you just need to weigh, weigh up those sorts of things to sort of go, well, am I getting a good return on investment? Is it worth me really having to increase the density? Particularly if you're researching the market, I think researching and understanding the market's really key. I give the example of subdivisions. You know, you might have a five-acre site, which potentially you could squeeze 60 lots into, right? Like, you know, maximum if the council allows you to, you might be able to squeeze 60 lots. But really, the, the product that people are looking for might be 450 square meters, in which case you own, you can only put in 45 lots. But here's the thing, people are going to be wanting to purchase that quicker, the, the size lot that's more comfortable, as opposed to, you know, if you're selling the 250 square meter lots, which, yes, you might be able to sell it for more per square meter, but again, you're having to pay more contributions and also, it might not move as quickly because the people are really selective. They go look at the 250 square meter lot and they still go, how do I fit a two-car garage into it? So, you know, really understanding the, the product that you're putting out there and, again, looking at whether the highest… Higher best use. Highest best use. Yeah. Highest use doesn't necessarily always mean it's the best use. Yes, that's that's very important. And I think you make a very important point in relation to time, right? So when you think about developments, you might have a massive margin in a development, but if that development is taking you five years to do or four years to do, your annualized returns quite significantly reduce. You would rather do a much more smaller development where it's yeah. a quicker entry and a quicker exit. And yeah. so that's a good segue in talking about, you know, various different type of developments. Okay. So let's kick off with you know, my favorite or used to be favorite, the hammerheads where you're saving the house at the front building, one or two at the back. What do you think about that? You know, can you make $100,000 in hammerheads? Yeah, absolutely. And the great thing with hammerheads is that is if there is a house in the front where you can improve improve its value cosmetically, you can do a quick renovation and all that. What I love about that, it just reduces the amount of risk in a project because you've already got an asset that's sitting there you can renovate it. You can sell it. Often, the, the 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 rule of rule of thumb is that if you purchase a site with a hammerhead, you want to be able to sell the front lot for as much as you purchased it for. So, the block in the back or whichever, you know, if you sold it for two three hundred thousand, you'd make two hundred thousand or so in profit. Hundred percent, hundred percent. And and all you'd need to do was to put in your the subdivision civils and and an application for example. Yeah. So it's fairly straightforward development from that aspect, which you Definitely. can do pretty you know, pretty quickly, right? Definitely. I think I think Hammerhead, one of my first projects when I stepped into the development space was actually a Hammerhead. It was by Fluke that I acquired that that project. But ultimately it is a low risk strategy. You know, you have an asset in place that you can keep the tenants in, they would still keep paying the mortgage for your portion of the mortgage at least. Um, I remember uh, when I did the hammerhead, uh, I bought that lot for I think 685, I ended up selling the hammerhead, the front lot at about 585 and had two lots at the back that I developed and sold for about 700 each and costed me about I think 550 to build, you know, plus an extra hundred. So I saved close to about $600,000 in that project. And so 
or 500 to 550, somewhere around there, you know, including all the holding costs, et cetera, everything. But it's a very, very quick and nifty, you know, trick. You know, you just need to do your due diligence properly. You have a rental coming in. Uh, you are de-risking yourself during the project. The banks would love you because you can sell the front, de-risk yourself, use the equity in the back to basically get the construction finance. You don't really need a lot of money to basically do hammerheads because you're building the equity basically instantly. So um, it's, a, it's a very nifty trick. Yeah. I think the best thing about hammerheads that a lot of people don't realize is that if you are living in one of the hammerheads, you can scale it in such a way that you do your property where you're living in, build one at the back, move there, sell the front, pay no capital gains, build another one, move to the third one, sell the second one, pay no capital gains, and then sell the third one and pay no capital gains. It's a beautiful strategy to take in place. No GST, no CGT. If you plan it well, you do one of those projects and you could potentially earn, you know, four or $500,000 pretty easily. Obviously, speak to your accountant about Yes, of course, advice. of course. I need to call out a caveat that, you know, this is not financial <laughs> advice. This is not a tax advice. Please don't listen to me. You know, go listen to your accountant when you are talking about some of these strategies. Um, you know, everyone's yeah. way of doing things is different. Of course, you know, you need to have proper structures in place. You need to look at your own personal profile before making some of these decisions. Yeah, ab- absolutely as well. And um, sorry, I was going. I was going to say with the thing with the hammerheads. I want to ask because they are such a popular sort of. Be- I was going to say beginner strategy, but let's say it's not not even a beginner. They are such a popular stra- strategy. Do you still believe there are opportunities there in this space to make good money in hammerheads? See, the problem with hammerheads is that. These days, the owner or the vendor who's selling hammerheads knows that his property is a hammerhead. So usually these properties now have started to take a bit of premium. And so that premium is basically taken over in the growth side of things by the vendor in itself because they know that this is a hammerhead side of things. Okay. Typically what a a vendor would be doing is they would be saving their own house and splitting it and selling a hammerhead block at the back. And so, you know, you would see them time and time again everywhere, you know, be it Sydney, Adelaide, Melbourne, Brisbane, everywhere, you know, you would see owners doing that because they know that the cost to, you know, subdivide this portion of the land and putting a DA on is bugger all, right? And so, yeah, they're becoming less and less attractive. And what I find is that a lot of people build into their feasibility some sort of growth indicators when they are doing hammerhead projects. The other thing which is quite important and also quite the key is when you're thinking about hammerhead side of things, there are no hammerheads with 25 to 30%, you know, returns. You know, you can't get those marginal costs on those those hammers because they are low risk strategies. Of course, the returns are lower as well. Now, you know, when I was quoting my own example, I made the money not because there was development profit in it, it was growth profit that was combined together at the same time. And so, my original feasibility was actually me assuming that I would be selling them for 580 to 600, but ultimately I ended up selling them for 72730, right? So I made that extra two, three hundred thousand dollars. My original feasibility was actually sitting at, you know, 200 to 230. And so understand that, you know, there would be growth if you pick the right area. And, uh, and that's what a lot of these, you know, first time developers are banking on that, you know, while there is little amount of profit, I can do it in such a way that I can de-risk myself, still pull a six figure. But if the growth comes in, you know, there is an opportunity to maybe double the returns. 
Yeah, yeah. Still, so what we're saying, it's still a good strategy. Obviously, make sure you do your numbers. It is more compet, you know, it's a more competitive market, but there's always going to be opportunities there. Definitely, definitely. See. Yeah, just just need it, to it, put it, in the hard yeah. yards. It works for those owner occupiers who are living there in the property. I think it's a perfect, you know, strategy for owner occupiers. I always say to people that you know, if you want to mix your principal place of residence, this decision with an investment decision by a hammerhead because you could never go wrong yeah you have you're living in the yeah. property at the front you could do a lot more with the prop you know the space at the back yeah and even if you're paying a little bit of a premium now definitely 100% definitely yeah second strategy so, multi units 1 into 3 1 into 4 1 into 6 1 into 8 what do you think 1 into 1000 yes potentially <laughs> Yeah, absolutely. So, when you talk about multi units you're talking about um multi units in the residential space or so one into two one into three I would call them full scale development sites you know there is all these crazy finances that comes into place ultimately when you think about multi units when you think about proper development sites what you are basically doing is you are now taking into account the structures and how you're going to finance this you know I always say this that development is a game of structures and finance if you do it properly you can make money out of any side right you know you can do deals without bringing in your own money you can bring your skin in the game through your experience your sweat equity and that's where a lot of developers play so talk to us a bit about multi units Cheryl you know what sort of pros and cons do you think around the multi units out of things yeah absolutely one of the things I'd like to to bring up is is serviceability What I like about multi units is is you're able to leverage commercial lending. And so when I talk about commercial lending and residential lending, so look at residential lending as your um your typical, you know, you go to the broker, I want to get a loan, what's your serviceability, what's your job, you know, how much you can borrow, equity, you know, your 20% deposit that sort of thing. You get your typical residential loan. the ones that you'd be familiar with if you go to CBA or NAB or whichever where again it's 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 reliant on your serviceability so you can do generally a house and land bill a duplex sometimes you can push sort of three townhouses however once you go past that it goes into that commercial lending space where the rules are very different yes. um and if you're if you're if you're lucky enough to have a very very good track record with a first tier lender then your rates are are still quite low but for the rest of the developers out there often they choose not to go with sort of residential lending it's still commercial lending but with a whole lot of different types of lenders you've got your first second tier lenders then you've got your non-bank lending and then you've got private funding you've got fund managers and all that where your rates you you see interest rates that might go up to 10 you know 8 9 so it's 10% depending on the risk of your project so it is more expensive right it's going to be more expensive than your normal residential loan however from my experience it gives you more flexibility so the project isn't reliant on your serviceability or your job it's reliant on the strength of the feasibility and and basically whether there is a good chance that it will make money 
because the lender wants to make sure that you can pay for your loan. Because often the loan is capitalized. So Definitely. unlike residential lending, if you're building a house, you still got to pay for your loan. Whereas with commercial lending, your your interest is typically capitalized. Yes, you've got to put down a bit more money up front in terms of the equity that you've got to put in. But as with what you said, you know, that can be some of your money, that can be some, you know, an investor's money. So there's a lot more scope to be a bit more creative there. Yes. But it also allows people who, when I first started off and I, I shared this, where I thought that I was only able to develop as much as I, I could personally afford. Right? Yeah. Everyone thinks, how can I afford to do a development? The truth is, you don't need to be able to afford the development. You just need to be able to find the solutions and the structures and the people to make it happen. Yes, definitely. Definitely. 100%. And look, I think that's a very important point. When you talk about commercial lending, the rules of engagement changes completely, right? Everything about is about the strength of the project. And it's all about the exit strategy that you're going to take. And so if your exit strategy is sell, and majority of the developers will, will do the feasibilities based on a sell strategy, and if you can deliver more than 15% margin on cost, there would be a lender out there who would write your project and provide you the funding. Yes, the yes. LVRs might differ, the valuations might differ, but ultimately that's a completely different ballgame. I think that's the biggest stereotype that is out there for a lot of developers and they naturally think that, oh, I need to provide the serviceability for, to get the construction finance because they might have built their own house or they might have done a smaller project. What they don't realize is in the commercial world, there is no such thing as serviceability well there is but everything is about the viability of the project and how strong is your financials how good is your track record how great is your exit strategy one of the best things about no back lending or fund managers or private lending is no pre-sales right and that's where the developers really really love it because they're saving time a lot of these major lenders will force you to do pre-sales or de-risk them for 50%, even sometimes 100% of their debt, which means that, you know, 50, 60% of their project. And so if you're wasting, you know, four months, six months in selling that project, that's six months of holding cost attached to it. And so the perfect route for a lot of new developers is that they would acquire the site under the residential land, making it look like, oh, I'm going to live here or I'm going to buy this as an investment property. And then place a DA and off they go straight to the commercial land, no serviceability attached, put more money and basically go down that route of, you know, exit, sell, make money and come back. I think the key to a lot of these things where a lot of people get caught out on is two key things. When you're thinking about developments out of things, number one is a lot of people get the trust right, but because they are newbie developers or mom and dad developers, they would name the trust X, Y, and Z development company or X, Y, and Z development group. And, you know, that's a big no-no. As soon as the bank sees the name, they know that while you're going on the residential lend, this is a development that is about to happen or going to happen. And so it's a it's a biggest trigger. So always ensure that, you know, you pick a non-fancy name for your development company so that, you know, the banks don't trigger some of those things. I tend to always use the street name or something like that, you know, that's, you know, out of uncommon uh, it's not very common. No one can pick it so that, you know, it, there is no relationship. The other thing which is quite important and again, quite the key is that 
people who are going in for longer settlements are six months to 12 months to 24 months because you do get longer settlements. A lot of people don't know about this. That if you have a DA in place or even in progress on a land, the bank would see that, uh, the valuer would see that. And so if you're trying to get this on a residential land, they would know that there is a DA in progress or there is a DA in place. And so potentially they'll push you down the commercial route and would not let you settle that as a residential land. And so a lot of people get caught out on a lot of these things, you know, when they are building it or, you know, when they're going down the resi route, of course, you know, the single line valuation kicks in, which has, you know, 20, 30%, you know, disconnect versus a GRV valuation. So be careful about some of these, I call it landmines, and we'll do a whole separate podcast, you know, explaining about developments and the steps of developments and talking in a, a bit more detail. But that's the gist of it. I think multi-units is where, you know, a lot of money is to be made and you would see a lot of developers being successful in doing a lot of multi-units, you know, all across Australia. And so it's not state-specific or area-specific. It's just where the numbers work. Yeah, yeah, yeah absolutely. Again, looking at all the previous episodes that we've done around feasibility and team and all that, yes, yes, there's money to be made there. Like anything else, you know, higher risk, um, higher return, there's a bit more risk there. You can manage that risk. But definitely that's, you know, I guess that's where the money is. 100%. Last one, um, land subdivisions. You know, you see a lot of developers or people getting into land subs, you know, two land subdivisions, three land subdivisions. You know, what are your thoughts there? Cheryl, I know you have a lot of experience. You have done a few land subdivisions yourself. I love, love land subdivisions. It was probably my sort of initial foray into... I say proper proper development. And what I found so, and, and what I still really like about land subdivisions is that there's no emotion about a land subdivision. <laughs> and when I say yes. that, it's because that you're not land. putting a house on it that needs to be pretty or anything else. You, you're selling a piece of dirt, right? However, yes. that piece of dirt to instill in the end buyer this sense of lifestyle and it needs to be in the right place. I just find land subdivisions easier in the sense that you are cutting it up. <laughs> there it yes, is. it's like uh, a cake, like a square either, cake. It's like a, a cake. Yeah, everyone yeah. wants the 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 the, 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 the rectangular sort of even size slices. Nobody wants the corner bits, which are weird and sort of triangular shaped. No idea, right? Yeah. So you <laughs> and um, I like land subdivisions in in the sense that. When you're doing feasibilities, what I found previously is that I can generally use a pretty good rule of thumb in terms of what my subdivision costs are. I sort of know what my subdivision costs are going to be. I know what my contributions are going to be. So doing and assessing a land subdivision site, I have found previously to be a lot easier in that in that aspect in general. Yeah. Whereas opposed to doing a townhouse development, Yes, I can ballpark what it's going to be. However, each location, depending on the the quality of the build, depending on how many, you know, what the size is of the property and so on and so forth, there's a bit, there are a few more variables in there. Not that you can't use a ballpark or not that you can't Definitely. do a feasibility. There's just more variables in there. So again, I personally love a good land subdivision. Because yeah. I can sort of look at it and, and I can look at a site, I can understand 
what percentage is going to be used for roads. And I go, okay, on average, what are the size lots that are selling well? And literally it's in the calculator and go, I divide it by 450 it's, square meters. Yeah. I will probably get these many lots. Yeah. So that's really easy from that aspect, which is what I love about that. 100%. How about I think, you? Yeah. If you think about the residential bills or townhouses or single story houses as well, you know, multi-units, you know, that people call the biggest care factor there is the neighbors and the neighborhood characters that the council impose on you. Um, and that's where the biggest risk is, right? You know, um, it, it's funny, like we're doing a site right now, a development in Frankston had no issues. The council approved it. It's a four unit site. I have a friend literally at the end of that street, same similar site, did a four units and 56 objections, like like same street, right? I could not believe yeah, it when he, he told me that. And so I was like, Jesus, you know, I think I got a free pass because <laughs> I don't know, it's the same neighbors, right? I don't know how they let me through and just hold him like ransom to his side going all the way to weekend and literally months difference, right? You know, I passed through and he was waiting for his notice of decision. So it's funny, like, you know, the neighbors and the neighborhood character and the councils as to how they can respond to some of these things, you know, depending on how you're planning your site and how you're cutting and what sort of offsets are you using or how are you using your building envelope. I think the other important thing is what I felt always is that land subdivisions, while they are capital intense, you can stage them to get the profits from the first one to pay off the second one and the profits from the second one to pay off the third one. And so while they would look, you know, I would use the word ginormous. My kid taught me this new word ginormous, <laughs> but, uh, you can you basically don't know stage the it. word ginormous, Marks. I, I didn't know the word ginormous. Yeah, I thought there was a giant and enormous. You know, ginormous. Yeah, that's what it is. That's so, so yeah, while they are capital intense, it just makes sense that you know you stage it and basically make the money along the way. Whereas, you know, if you think about residential developments or townhouses, they are capital intense all the way through. You know, there are, there is no staging per se unless you're doing like 25 townhouses or 30 townhouses or 50 townhouses. And, you know, there are some of those developments there. So, you know, I, I totally understand and agree as to why would people be a lot more pro to doing developments? Because while you might think that this is a three-year project or a five-year project, this is staged on, you know, 10, 20, 30 projects. And along the way, the developers would stage it, you know, use the profits from the first one to, you know, build the second one. And so you don't technically or typically need, you know, massive money, you know, to, to, to kick off, you know, you can have development management agreements with the owners. You can basically do it, it through that way as well. Also, the the best thing about the land subdivisions is you can add a bit more premium to the next stage every time, right? You know, every time you sell it, the next stage comes in, you add an extra 5% and you add an extra 10%. That drops straight to the profit. It goes nowhere. It just goes straight to the profit because the, the you know, the civils are not changing. The civils are the civils. And so that's, you know, what I call it is this, the ice cream on the cake that you always get, you know, by the time you are on stage eight or stage nine and stage 10, you're almost marking the first product by, 30 40 percent more than you know what the what yeah. the stage one was selling with so um it's yeah. an amazing strategy yeah. to play with i'm not sure if i like ice cream on my cake but <laughs> to be honest i find that a really odd combination but i get your point <laughs> i get no, your, definitely. I get your point. yeah yeah exactly it's 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 the ability to, to just 
keep adding sort of that profitability. And again, that's why land subdivisions are so cool in that regard. Yes. The more people that buy into it, and if it's staged, then it actually encourages more people to purchase in the next. Yes. It creates this massive FOMO, you know, around it. So yeah, let's wrap this up, Cheryl. You know, parting words in relation to uh, development, six figures, six strategies with for six figures you're talking about developments wrap it wrap yeah, this up for us developments i mean it, it is it is exciting yet also challenging at the same time you really you know development it's it's not for the faint-hearted that every day you are dealing with something coming yes. up in the yes. project right? and it's definitely you yeah, i can you, you can know, see I, my gray hair here and here so yeah, yeah it's all from developments. yeah yeah it's yeah, every single day where, you know, so you you really need to, I think you, you really need to be wired to have that resilience to deal with that and to deal with yes. and not necessarily look at them as problems, just that, that they're just things that come up in a development. Definitely. It's never, ever smooth sailing. So, yes, however, there are the rewards there, but you need to make sure that that you're doing your due diligence, you're getting, you're, you're not really understanding your numbers making sure that you've got the right team around you that will help you deliver it. Obviously, make sure that you pick the right builders because we know all the the, the pool storm that's happening with builders at the moment. And yes. um, and fingers crossed the market's still great when you're, when you're selling. You know, there's so many facets about a great and successful development. And if you get that, then the rewards are really quite handsome. Has some beautiful whatever gender neutral. However, <laughs> if if there are bits that get really wrong, then it can be also quite painful. Yes. Right? Um, yes. So it is it is something that you want to make sure that you're going into eyes wide open, getting the right mentors, educate yourself, make sure that you've got the right team around you. That's amazing. Beautiful words. I think I'll just add two more things to this. So, of course, 100% solution focused. I think that is the key. If you are not solution focused, if you throw your hands up in the air, if the problem comes to you, then that is definitely not for you. But buying it right, I think it's 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 very, very important. I think a lot of people who are desperate to get into developments, even some of the very experienced developers fall prey to this, that they don't end up buying it right. They buy it at the peak. Or, or they are too emotionally attached to the property or they're too emotionally attached to the project or they are just rushed into jumping into the new project. So buying it right is the key when it comes to property development. This is not a get-rich-quick scheme. Do your feasibilities, do your numbers, you know, ensure that there is a lot of conservatism built into it. Build the contingencies. You can release them as profits as they come along. Great, great, great message. Thank you very much, Cheryl. Uh, this is awesome. it for us. For today, if you want to reach out to any one of us, Cheryl or myself, you know, definitely reach out to us, you know, talk about developments. That is a, a, a topic very close to our heart. Thank you for listening to us today. If you have any problems, questions, concerns, comments, you know, please do join us um, or drop into the comments below. Thank you for listening to us. Have a wonderful day. Thank you. See Keep you smiling. all. Bye. Keep investing. Take care. Adios. This is Moss and Cheryl checking out. Ciao.